0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line
1: from the Washington Post, Ben Goliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. All hail our termite overlords. I mean, we can't run from this one. Uh, This was a dark day for Giannis, Inc. Nobody's selling stock, but uh, the Toronto Raptors just got done beating the Milwaukee Bucks in game five in Milwaukee. Uh, the Bucks looked stunned. Uh, to me, they looked a little bit exhausted. Uh, they looked uh, shocked at what Fred Van Vliet was able to do on the perimeter. And they also just looked discombobulated. I mean, the offense was completely bottled up. If they weren't in transition, nothing was working for them. And uh, mm-hmm. Kawhi Leonard steps up to close the door of the fourth quarter. He moves the basketball career high assists. Uh, the balance scoring is there for Toronto, and I'll be honest, Andrew. And this might be a reverse jinx. You know, I don't know how it's going to translate up in Canada. <laughs> I already booked my ticket for the finals to Toronto.
0: I saw that. I saw that that on Instagram. Is that ticket
1: refundable at least? Well, you know, you can do change fees. You're kind of ruining the story, you know? I mean, the the idea is that, uh, you know, we're giving all the credit, and if it turns back around, we could say it's a reverse jinx, you know? I mean, Drake's out there in, uh, you know, Jurassic Park saying, we're going to the NBA Finals with thousands of fans jumping up and down around him. But, I I mean, I think it's done. I think that was their shot. I was really impressed by Toronto in Game 4. Honestly, I didn't think they had Game 4 in them as a team, uh, and I thought Uh they were even better in Game 5. I mean, obviously, 18-4 start aside— uh, you know, you look at the game, to me, it, it was one where I think, you know, some of the offensive explosions, you know, like from Van Vliet or Leonard is going to get a lot of the attention. But I thought they won this game with one of the most boring things, and that's interior defense. Whether it was Leonard, you know, just harassing Giannis off the dribble, whether it was Siakam coming over for that late block on Giannis, whether it was uh, Marcus Saul, I think, either stepping in for a charge or, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, forming that wall like they like to call it. Um, yeah, they were able to just kind of turn Milwaukee's uh, offense inside out. I mean, you know, middle Middleton basically didn't show up, uh, but ultimately it all started with Giannis. He wasn't able to kind of get the kinds of you know inside outside drive moves uh, consistently going, especially down the stretch. And their fourth quarter defense was on another another level. They were flying around. They were helping each other. They were contesting shots, and uh, it was a sight to behold. You got to give them credit. Yeah,
0: you know. I don't want to sound too forlorn here because it was an awesome game all around. I mean, that is about as great as playoff basketball gets. The shots that Kawhi was burying in the fourth quarter are about as incredible as any one player can look in the playoffs. I mean, the back-to-back threes he hit were just backbreakers. And the Bucks, to their credit, fought back from there, but I mean... Kawhi has been on another level. Yeah. I will say- Those shots that, like, though,
1: real quick, on those shots, I mean, come on. On um, Brooke Lopez twice in a row, where's Coach Bud there? I mean, I, and not to take away from Kawhi, they're great shots, but you cannot yeah, don't have, take it away from Kawhi.
0: You, like that was outstanding. Yeah,
1: but come on, you cannot have in a conference finals game with your season on the line where you've made your adjustment, you know, changing your starting lineup because you realize you're in some serious trouble. You cannot have in the fourth quarter, your worst perimeter defensive player- on their best offensive player twice in a row. That can't happen. I mean that they- Yeah.
0: Well, and I'm wondering why they went to the switching in this series. I understand why they did it against the Celtics, but it seemed like the scheme that they had through the first half of this series was working just fine. And you know, game 3 was c- close right to the end. Like literally it was a toss-up. It went to overtime. Like the Bucks did not necessarily have to kind of reset and uh come up with a whole new blueprint and it seemed like that's sort of what they did particularly down the stretch in this game
1: yeah i mean the the bucks they they came out hot and they were able to get to transition and that's really where they've had success once it's slowed down though i think it's a combination of what Kawhi was doing on Giannis, um but also mm-hmm. just the slow grind i mean i don't know if you agree with me but Toronto early in this series they looked tired they looked a half step slow they looked like they didn't quite have enough juice to me I thought it it was the Bucks tonight who were kind of uh you know wheezing down the stretch and that goes for Giannis too man it's not very often that he gets outworked or outlasted yeah. but it wasn't just the ankle thing that kind of pulled him from the game in the last minute I mean he was not having that kind of like impact and force on his drives and I think conversely you know Kawhi Leonard it wasn't just those three pointers it was just that slow bleed of drive after drive after drive getting himself to the free throw line you know forcing fouls putting the the decisions in the referee's hands and he was getting rewarded time and time again you could see the frustration from Milwaukee side and I think coach Bud after the game said hey we, we think." Um, you know, Giannis probably deserves more calls than he got, and, and guys like Lowry and Kawhi were sort of parading to the stripe, but uh, they earned it, right. I mean, and they outlasted him. There's no question about it.
0: Yeah, and you know, I just have to be honest here. We could talk about the Raptors in a second, but when I say I feel a little forlorn tonight, um, you know, you talk about the Bucks being stunned and discombobulated. That's how I felt watching the Bucks because I really— I paid lip service to the idea that Giannis might struggle because I wrote about this game coming into Game 5, and I said, look, this could be a learning experience that we all look back on and say, you know, this was sort of a stepping stone to something bigger for Giannis. He's only 24 years old. And, and so I paid lip service to that idea. I did not really believe that he was going to come out in Game 5 and struggle the way he did. I did not really believe the Bucks. We're gonna get almost nothing from the rest of the roster. Literally, outside of Malcolm Brogdon, everyone struggled and was disappointing tonight. And um, I don't know. I look I, like I'm. I'm excited to see where we go with this Raptors team if they do end up going to the finals. But like to be completely honest, I wanted to be in Milwaukee in June. I wanted to see Bucks Warriors. We talked about it a week ago. I thought that series was gonna be great. And it is a little bit deflating to see Kawhi, who is basically like a basketball sociopath, head to the finals with this uh, Raptors roster who oh, actually here. <laughs> Let's give the Raptors a hundred percent of credit because they have been Whoa, whoa, tough hold, as on, nails. hold on, hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> on. I,
1: I I've got the spins right now. It feels like I just went on a roller coaster. Okay. Wait a minute. Are are you upset and you don't want to go to Toronto or you're saying, Okay, these guys deserve the credit?
0: I've been to Toronto, lovely city. I enjoyed my time there. I'm just saying, personally, I was excited about potentially seeing the Bucks go after the Warriors, see Giannis on that stage, and see where the chips fall. Because I think they match up fairly well. It could have been really interesting, particularly if Durant isn't going to play in the first half of the series. And so, watching the game tonight was sort of me progressively coming to grips with the idea that, like, you know it might really be the Raptors and this is really happening and the Bucks are just falling apart before our
1: eyes and yeah, um, this really sounds we, like a Raptors Republic headline sports illustrated writer hates Toronto doesn't want to have no, to come no, no. here for finals I, I can see it now I do
0: not hate Toronto whatsoever okay and I'm excited and and watching them come through <laughs> over and over again over the last month I mean look I've, I've been the guy who has believed in Kawhi all along and, um, and watching him lead them has been crazy impressive. But I think part of what has been so surprising and equally impressive about this series is that it's other guys stepping up too, you know, Marcus Saul has been excellent over the past few games. Um, Fred Van Vliet obviously was like lights out tonight. Kyle Lowry has been great the entire series, like up and down the roster, a lot of guys that we had questions about as recently as a week ago have come out and played some of the best basketball of their life. I mean not like Gasol has obviously had higher peaks, but like he has been excellent um throughout and it's been yeah, really look, impressive to see this team respond. He
1: wasn't great in game 5, but he hit the one three when they needed it. He was amazing in game 3 and 4. There's no question about it. I guess when I watched game four, that was the game that kind of shook me. You know, that was the one where I was like, oh, okay. uh, You know, this Toronto team is going to a gear that I didn't really believe that they had. And it was because a lot of those supporting cast guys, but it was also because of Kawhi's ability to sort of balance things. I thought in game four, he was balancing it offensively, not doing quite as much, almost out of necessity because of his leg. In game five, He was just doing it because he was making smart reads and good decisions. And he kind of closed the door there, like I was saying, going downhill over and over again in that fourth quarter to kind of, you know, brush Milwaukee uh, out of that game. But throughout that game, he's trusting his teammates. They're stepping up and delivering. A lot of those guys were really rough in games one and two, and they came back with just a different energy. I think they came out of game four. Feeling like they were the better team and they were going to win this series. Period. Like that's how they played. Even though they got off to the slow start in Game Five, uh, that's another example though. Is like if you're down 18-4 and you don't believe you're the better team, you lose that game, right? And I don't. I think that absolutely they came out of the of Game Four with a mental edge. It made me think back honestly to like three years ago when they were in the Conference Finals, and I think this shows some of their franchise's growth and also the the importance of adding a guy like Kawhi, where they come out of Game Four tied two both uh, two two. Lowry and DeRozan both have 30 plus points in Game Four, so they're basically playing their formula basketball. And LeBron's mm-hmm. response is, "This is not an adverse situation. <laughs> Who cares?" And, Cle- <laughs> yeah, and <that's> Cleveland right. <laughs> blows them off the court in Game Five, and then wins Game Six. I, right? I
0: totally forgot that LeBron explicitly said, "We're not worried." Uh, like in the middle of the series, was just like, "Yeah, we don't really care about
1: this. We're it, fine." Exactly. And you have the exact same situation here, two-two. But the Bucks' reaction after Game Four, holes are. Looked like ashen. He could barely talk. He was hoarse, and he's like, uh, "This is going to be an incredible series." And Middleton was like, "We're going to be in for a dogfight in Game five. I mean, they were clearly like, you know, ca- caught off guard, and I think it kind of carried over a little bit uh, into Game Five. I like yeah. that Coach Bud changed his lineup. I was kind of advocating for the Brogdons, you know, move to start. Um, I think it was,
0: well, Miritich has been disastrous throughout the series. So yeah, absolutely. Brogdon needed to get in there.
1: Yeah. But even that, like it could have been for Bledsoe too. I mean, he just had to get you know closer to what his best five was to open that game. I thought that Uh paid off for them. uh, But the sacrifice was that when they go to their bench, uh, like you mentioned, they didn't really have much of anything. And Fred Van Vliet probably outscored their entire bench by himself, didn't they? (laughs)
0: It occurred to me midway through the fourth quarter that when Fred Van Vliet is like three or four times better than Chris Middleton, that's a pretty bad sign for the Milwaukee Bucks. And that's sort of where we were tonight. Um, I never stopped believing in Fred Van Vliet. It's awesome to see him coming through. But yeah, when you talk about the Raptors in general, it sort of sounds generic crazy. But like, I mean it. I'm genuinely shocked by how (laughs) mentally tough they have been for the last couple weeks of the playoffs because we can go back to the middle of the Sixers series going into that game four Siakam is questionable the entire internet is basically like all right so I guess the Sixers have the series here and then they go get that win and then they fight in game seven get that win and then after losing that game one you and I were on here and again Everyone in basketball media, probably every Raptors fan, saw that game and was like, all right, well, that's it. And you can go back to the game one against the Cavs they had last year where it came down to the buzzer. They didn't get the win. Uh, Valanchunas missed that layup, that little chippy, and they just completely folded. And this Raptors team just never folds. like They keep coming, even after the 18-4 run to start the game. And I think it's a credit to Kawhi. But it's also just a credit to literally everyone else on the roster too has showed up over and over again over the last couple of weeks and a different guy kind of steps up each night. Yeah, and, I give um, most of it to I didn't Kawhi see, though.
1: Be- I didn't see any of it coming. Because yeah, well, they believe Kawhi in him. Like down deserves the deserves his
0: own conversation,
1: no question. Like they believe in him down the stretch and that's the difference. Nobody ever believed in DeRozan. I mean, you know, all the criticism outside, they tried to circle the wagons year after year after year. There was no way anyone could think, okay, this guy's going to be able to like, you know, gut out games against LeBron James in the fourth quarter when he can't shoot a three-pointer and he's afraid to shoot. Like, there's no way. Like, I mean, there was times where DeRosa would just like freeze in the middle of like a shooting motion because he realized he didn't have a three-point shot. You look at Kawhi, he's just like icily staring down Brooke Lopez and pulling up without a conscience. Uh, I think Van Vliet said it best in his post-game comments after game five. He's like, look, uh... We have a guy that we want to close games night after night. He knows that's his role and he does it for us. It's just like part of their formula. Like They all are bought in and understand it. And I think the the surprising part to me, though, was that they didn't shift too far that way once the pressure has ramped yeah. up, right? Like the, it was a two-way trust street. And that's the part where I've always questioned Kawhi. Is he going to make his teammates better? Is he going to be willing to pass the ball and make the right reads? Uh, is he going to be able to sort of pick apart a defense or is he going to get into t- doing too much of his own stuff? To me, 25 shots from him and just parading to the free throw line is such a healthier situation than like the 39 he was taking in game seven against the uh, the Sixers. And you look at, you know, the margins of victory in these two games. I mean, I just thought they played better all around. Uh, the offense uh, functioned much more effectively. Hey, I got to go. Well, and. Qu- um- what I would say, actually, on that front is that
0: tonight was the perfect formula for the Raptors where Kawhi, you could see throughout that first half, he was going out of his way to draw Bucks defenders and then hit open shooters. And honestly, through the first half, a lot of those Raptors were, were missing shots. Uh, but Kawhi was still finding guys and doing the best he could to facilitate. And then it was the fourth quarter where he went in to kind of take over... Terminator killer mode and did it on his own and I think that's the healthiest place for the Raptors to be because when they're relying on Kawhi to be in that mode for the entire game that's when things tend to get screwed up they can kind of get stuck in a rut a little bit and some of those other guys kind of check out. But um, everybody is engaged, and that makes the whole team a lot more dangerous.
1: No question. That's exactly what I wanted to see, and we got to give them credit. They did. They, they, it's exactly like a, a picture-perfect game. I mean, Nick Nurse looks so happy afterwards. I think they shot better than 40% on threes. I actually have been a little bit disappointed in M- Milwaukee's three-point defense. I just think like mm-hmm. in terms of the rotations, contesting shots, I think Toronto has done a better job um, basically the entire series, even including the first couple of games. Uh, in checking those boxes i mean that's not fun stuff it's it's hard i think you know toronto's got some length in positions maybe where milwaukee doesn't so maybe that uh you know makes it a little bit easier to cover the ground out to those shooters but uh, I thought that you know Toronto was generating really good looks, and including Van Vliet. Like I'm sure if you go back and look at the tape, like people are going to be like, well, how did he <laughs> How this guy hit seven threes, my, right? My
0: guy, yeah. the one raptor that I have always believed in, Freddie Van Vliet. Uh, can we play the quote from Ben Golliver Studios here? Yeah, real
1: game, real quick before you do that though. I mean, it was like a personal three-point shooting competition at times. You know, I mean, this guy's getting yeah. clean looks. Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine what I would feel
0: like if I were a Bucks fan watching Fred Van Vliet go 7 from 9 from 3 because he's the type of guy that most of the time if he's shooting from 3, you feel comfortable with him taking those shots um, at least over the last month and a half. But uh, he knocked them down tonight. And so here's Fred Van Vliet game walking us through his last 72 hours uh, with the birth of his child
2: has been pregnant for a while, and uh, the due date was May 31st, so we knew that it would be close, we knew that it would be around this time, and my first daughter came three weeks early, so we were expecting it to be any day now, um, Monday morning, I thought i had a nice day off at home in Toronto, I got the call that uh, her water broke, and uh, I started, you know, rumbling around trying to find if I could get on a plane, so made it, made it to Rockford at about 3 p.m., spent the day at the hospital, and baby boy came um, Monday night at 9.30, so... You know, doing through all that whole process. Stayed at night. Um, if anybody has kids before, you know, getting discharged is a whole another adventure. Trying to leave the hospital, and so they were they were stuck up there for a while with the baby getting checked out. And I stayed uh, Tuesday. Uh, stayed in the morning. Flew back. Got to Toronto at two or three. Try to take a little nap and headed to the arena for for game uh, four. And uh, you know, flew for game four. Uh, Flew back here yesterday, and I took a car down to uh, Rockford yesterday night, and they were still in the hospital, so I spent the night at the hospital last night. And we are fortunate enough to get discharged this morning, so drove down to uh, Milwaukee this afternoon and took another nap, if that's what you call it, and, you know, laced them up again here for game five. So it's been a a frantic week, but, you know, that's, that's what makes all this stuff worth it.
0: It's just incredible to me that that's been his schedule over the past week. And for those who don't know, that's Rockford, Illinois. So he was able to just drive from Milwaukee down to Rockford, Illinois. Look, There's a lot of traffic
1: down there, man. I had to do that last week. That's no easy thing. I'm, I'm glad he got back in time for the game. Uh, I liked how exhausted he sounded while he was explaining that. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say that wasn't my best video clipping because right before that quote, he said, look, I'll explain it as long as this is the last time I have to do it. Because I think he's given that exact same spiel like (laughs) 10 times in the last 24 hours. And then right after after that, he kind of closed it off by saying "They, you know, like, was that the key to uh, your success? And he goes, yeah, zero sleep, have lots of babies. <laughs> that's how you uh, Yeah, that's how you well, make the shots. Well,
0: so. the quote that I'm reading is that's the formula. No sleep, have lots of babies, and let it fly. <laughs> Shout out to Fred Van Vliet Jr., who turned around the Raptors series, uh, certainly turned around Fred Van Vliet's game here. I love this because it is... Like aside from the whole baby angle, and aside from Fred VanVleet being an open floor icon over the last year or two, um, I do genuinely love that like these high stakes playoff games, which have a huge bearing on how we talk about Giannis, how we talk about Kawhi, how we talk about like the future of the league, can often turn on the performances of guys like Van Vliet, who came up huge. And um, it's just one of those quirks of playoff basketball that, like, we often forget that it's guys like Fred Van Vliet or Eddie House who like come through and uh, and change everything. Yeah, no. Random Ma- Eddie House shout out there.
1: Sorry. Uh, I mean, Myers Leonard was probably just like selling his uh, branded hats like gangbusters, yeah. you know, after the game three and game four performance. <laughs> after that first half. <laughs> so let's hope uh, our guy Fred Van Vliet has his own online shop, you know, little Etsy shop. Maybe he's making some money tonight.
0: Look, man, I will put down $35 for a Fred Van Vliet t-shirt um, whenever <laughs> whenever he makes it available. The Kawhi side of this, though, we've said it at various points over the last 20 minutes. I just need to be very clear. Like, I am straight up stunned by how good he is and his ability to slow down Giannis, the one guy who has basically been in- impossible to stop the entire season, And then Kawhi switches on to him in games three and four. And then again tonight and Siakam did a great job too. And like, look, the Raptors have a couple former defensive players of the year. They've got like their entire starting five is great on defense. So it's not just Kawhi, but Kawhi's ability on that end. And then to couple that with what he's doing on offense is just mind blowing. Um, And it's something that I expected to see maybe once or twice in this series, but have I, I had never in a million years would I have expected him to come in and just, like, own the series the way he has. He has been the best player on either team. Um, no, he definitely and has. And has not been close. I expected it to be at least close between him and Giannis, but it has
1: not been close. Uh, Giannis had some moments early in this series. Uh, yeah. I think people overuse that. Oh, it has a bit close thing. But Kawhi has definitely bit outplayed him in this series. And I think it goes back to the idea of, like, is Giannis so good that he doesn't need a jumper? And the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, I think we learned that here in this series. He is easier to guard for a player as smart and talented and physical as Kawhi Leonard uh, if he doesn't have to worry about the three-point off the dribble as being a threat. Um, it's also easier to send your help and make sure you have that second guy you know, planted in the middle of the paint if you know nine times out of ten he's trying to go off the dribble, spin move, uh, put his head down and get to the basket, right? Like it wound up mm-hmm. getting a little bit formulaic from, from Giannis offensively as his series unfolded and kind of playing into the you know Toronto Raptors hands. That's why I was worried after game four on behalf of the Bucks because Giannis didn't have any counters left, right? Like it's not like he's got this incredible, like crazy handle where he's going to be, you know, doing triple crossovers like Kyrie Irving through the paint and, you know, reverse layups and stuff like that. I mean, we, we know kind of what he wants to do off the dribble and most people can't stop it the combination of Kawhi plus Siakam or Kawhi plus Gasol, uh, or Kawhi plus Ibaka was able to effectively neutralize, you know, the best part of Giannis's game, which is going to the basket. And, you know, he did hit one three and it almost seemed like that was going to be like the best moment for them late in that game. When he, when he, uh, when he hit that one, it was like, oh, is this going to be the miracle night where a Giannis three kind of saves their season? Um, but it's not reliable from him. He doesn't trust it. And, you know it's crazy, well, and it's not a
0: good sign for the Bucks that they need him to start hitting those threes to get going, because all the things that he typically does well, he's just looked really uncomfortable with against the against the Raptors, and particularly against Kawhi. Like they, he's just never looked like he's in a rhythm, and that's. But like the Bucks are struggling for a lot of reasons. Eric Bledsoe has been a disaster. Uh, Miritich is borderline unplayable himself. Brooke Lopez. I mean, a lot of what I feared would happen against the Celtics is now happening against the Raptors. But I it definitely starts with just making Giannis uncomfortable. And there are times when it seems like he's sort of in his own head. He definitely wasn't aggressive enough to start the game, and then he got aggressive for about half a quarter near halftime. And then it just he struggled to kind of put his imprint on that second half as well.
1: Yeah, he was definitely in his own head. Uh overthinking. Uh, but it goes back to the reason why he's in his head is because what he wants to do going downhill has been taken away and he's run out of yeah. counters. And so he's. it's sort of like, you know, he, he's blue screened, right? Like your your laptop crashed. Like his laptop is crashing <laughs> in the middle of this series and he's trying to hit control. I've never heard that term before, but yes, that's a good way to describe well, it. Well, I'm from an Intel household, so that's probably where that one came from. But, and he's hitting control, delete, and he's getting no response. Yeah,
0: and it, it's not fun to watch as a... Giannis Inc. shareholder, co-founder. I don't like this. I don't like where we are right now uh, because again, it just never crossed my mind that there was a real possibility that he would get punked the way he's been punked. Oh, um, come on, and the series going a little too well, far. What? Though. I yeah. He's I going don't know. against a I more mean,
1: experienced uh, player. I mean, there, there's no question, and the experience factor with Lowry Gasol, I think that's showing through in this series for sure. And some of the yeah. doubts that you had about his supporting cast, you know, going back to the previous series have definitely manifested here. I think, I mean, even not, like, game, look, I'm not like game shoveling three, dirt on Giannis's name here. I'm right. just saying that I
0: I was a real believer uh, coming in here. And it's strange to watch him suddenly look mortal after the last nine years. That's a, all I'm saying. Yeah,
1: no, for sure. There's a difference between looking mortal and getting punked. I mean, his, his worst game, game three, he had the most rebounds by a Bucks player at a playoff game since Kareem. Uh, and he had four mm-hmm. block shots, right? So like he's still finding ways to contribute. His just his offense has definitely come back to earth. And um, you know, he's gonna have to get back in the lab. I mean, if he wants to avoid yeah. and I think, I mean, not to spin this forward and say, Oh, their season's over, he already needs to like start planning for the future or whatever, but when he's hit roadblocks in the past, that's what's led to the breakthroughs, right? Like he goes into the summer and thinks like I need to add XYZ if I want to be able to, you know, get past this stage of the playoffs. And for him, it's going to be even more motivation than ever to figure out how to shoot a jump shot that he trusts. And then he's going to have to figure out a little bit more off the dribble, uh, so that it's not, you know, it's not the same three moves over and over go left, go right, go Euro step or or spin. You
0: know what, to be honest with you watching his games, I I would focus more on that than the jumper. I, the jumper obviously will help whenever it comes. And I think it's encouraging that he's made incremental progress versus where he was a year ago. So, like, I don't think it's a pipe dream to think that it, three or four years down the line, he'll have something resembling a reliable mid range jumper that can help kind of free him up in these situations. But in general, if I were looking at like where Giannis can improve, the timing in terms of how he passes, when he passes, and the balance between distributing and kicking out to shooters versus just going at the rim and forcing things and making sure that he gets involved offensively is, is what will take him to another level. Because right now I think he's a little bit discombobulated. Like we've said, because he's just like struggling to make those reads and make those choices, and um, yeah, and it's That's, it the, it hurts doubly because the guys that he's leaning on are not showing up either.
1: Yeah, but so the tricky part is they've assembled nothing but shooters around him, right? They shot more yeah. threes and made more threes than basically everybody besides Houston during the regular season. There are some guys who you say, okay, maybe they're not going to show up as much in the playoffs, and that has come through in this series a little bit. I do give a lot of credit to, for that to uh, Toronto's. Uh, you know, perimeter defense here, especially the last couple of games. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's not that much more that any team can reasonably do to help him there, right? So if it's a matter of ball handling, uh, if it's a matter of just reps, I mean, I think he's come a long way in terms of his ability to read defenses. I think he makes, with the exception of game three, he made a lot of really good decisions in this series in terms of when to pass, when to not. And at some point, you do have to kind of go to the basket hard and hope you get calls. Uh, yeah. So. I don't know how much room or more room there is for improvement on some of those things. Whereas, you know, and this is not a a, a criticism specific to him, but if your lead ball handler is just not a proven threat from the perimeter, I'm not sure you can win a title in the NBA. It's something I've said in the past. Giannis was easily the person who was going to challenge that logic. But if you look at Curry, Durant, uh, Kawhi, Uh, you know, basically any LeBron, any of these guys who are in this conversation, Harden, if he could ever get through Golden State. I mean, all of those guys have that weapon. You know, Damian Lillard in the Western Conference Finals uh, and and same deal with Denver. I mean, they've got a lot of lead ball handlers who can shoot uh, or are comfortable on the perimeter, even Jokic, right? Um, I think that he's running into the same wall. And it's like, if, if Toronto didn't expose him in this way, I think Golden State would have, right? Because if you could say which group of defenders would you rather have Kawhi plus Toronto's bigs or Andre Iguodala or Clay Thompson plus Golden State's bigs, whether it's Draymond, Looney, whoever else who's going to be, you know, packing the paint there. I would take Golden State's personnel in that situation. So like, I think that's interesting. I I don't
0: know if I would, to be honest with you, because Kawhi has been so effective. Draymond has typically struggled with Giannis and and Giannis was going to be a great challenge for Draymond. Um, but But I think that they would
1: have just put Iguodala on him and said, Hey, try to strip him constantly, uh, you know, get up and be physical with him, you know, kind of make him drive into traffic. Draymond's the best help defender in the NBA. And then Looney has been having a great playoffs. And I think, uh, he, he might hold up a little bit better in that matchup than at times for Gasol. I just
0: think it's a credit to Toronto's personnel and how good they have been. And I think we've probably understated how much talent they have on that end. But it's it's a point well taken that like,
1: I'm just saying he was always he's screwed a either possibility way. with Yons. Like yeah. I just think yeah. that he was going to run into the same problem because he didn't have the jumper that like, unless he can completely physically overpower uh, the guy who is guarding him and the help defender, their offense is going to break down. And I think I did not expect it to happen in this round, uh, but I expected mm-hmm. that that would happen in the Warriors round. And so yeah, full credit to Toronto for sort of exceeding expectations defensively um but it's a huge hole in his game you know and yeah, yeah. you could talk well, around it as, to as be, much as you to want be fair, but it's a big problem
0: he's he's also getting hit a lot and uh, he has not gotten the calls that have gone the raptors way um and that's another thing that like coming into game 5 i kind of figured that the pendulum was going to swing back in Milwaukee's favor and for some reason he kept getting hit and was getting maybe half the calls he should have been around the rim. I understand it's playoff basketball. I know I sound like a Giannis soccer parent right now, but like you got to start giving him a few calls here along the way. I mean,
1: he—I—I I get yeah. that
0: he's kind of the new Shaq. No, but like, like they were. That minus, dude is getting hit every time. They were
1: minus thirteen from the free throw line in Game Five, and like I actually kind of thought Bud would come out harder than he did. Uh, maybe he just yeah. was feeling a little bit gun shy after the whole Drake fiasco. You know, like he takes one little subtle <laughs> d- dig at Drake, and all of a sudden it's like the headline for the whole story. So maybe he didn't want to like risk the fine and and blame the referees and have everybody kind of twist it. But I think he should have should have stood up for his star more. In fact, I think he should have yeah. taken the fine. And I wanted to ask you: Should he have taken Giannis out of the game when he did? After the game, he explained in that final minute. Giannis had twisted his ankle. He was in some pain. He didn't think he was moving very well, so that's why he pulled Giannis from the game. Uh, Giannis initially just like sat on the scorer's table, basically. It seemed like he almost didn't want to go back to the bench as a way to almost make Bud rethink that decision. Uh, to, yeah. to me, it brought back memories of taking Duncan out uh, in the 2000, 2000, uh, what uh, thirteen finals, where mm-hmm. he's not able to get the rebound on the that key play where the Ray Allen three... Uh, it's like what are you doing taking your best guy the guy who got you there out in sort of the pivotal moment uh, uh honestly
0: i trust whatever bud heard from Giannis regarding the ankle i'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt but there were three things in that final minute that made me legit just flip out watching that, that game in my living room number one was taking Giannis out i get it like bud came out afterward talked about the ankle whatever maybe that was the right decision. I don't know. But in that moment, I was sitting there watching that, being like, what the hell are you doing? Come on. This is the biggest game of the season. This is what the last nine months have been building to. And then Giannis is sitting there on the scorer's table, like clearly pissed off. Right. So that was There's frustrating. There's no way he
1: asked out of it, but can I see if I can guess number two and three? Uh, yes, please do. Let me guess. Was it Brooke Lopez not getting the rebound with Gasol oh and then the Chris Middleton three-pointer?
0: Um, No, it was not the Chris Middleton three pointer. The Brooke
1: well, Lopez. You better have number four then. <laughs> uh, well,
0: yeah. Middleton was very frustrating the entire night. Um, total zero on offense. Needs to be much better than that. The series is not over. We should emphasize that as well. But the Brooke Lopez thing drove me insane because that ball literally hit his hands. And he's just leaning there. The Bucks have been getting killed on the boards the entire series. And it's just a little bit upsetting. That was a big play. The other thing that really well, drove me hold crazy. on real quick. Can I
1: defend him though? His right arm was locked up by Gasol. I actually yeah. thought maybe it should have been a foul on Mark there. If you're going to start, you know, if we're nitpicking and whining about calls. But the annoying part about Brook is we've heard for 15 years now about his goofy, you know, rough and tumble relationship with Robin. Like how many times has he had his arm locked in a rebounding battle with his brother for his entire life? And the most important one, he's he's not able to haul that in. I mean, come on.
0: Yeah, you know, and I understand it's a hard play. So I don't want to sit here like Monday morning quarterbacking
1: Brooke Lopez. You could have done it. You could have gotten the rebound over, Mark, don't you
0: think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm 5'9", 5'10", on a good day. So, like, I would probably struggle too. I'm just saying... Rebounding is below the the waist, right? I
1: mean, you box him out, (laughs) get a good body on him. In the
0: moment, I said some things I'm not proud of. That's all I can say. And then the final play that really drove me insane was... Eric Bledsoe gets the rebound down three and just sprints up the court at 150 miles oh, an hour. Yeah. I don't understand why he felt the need to go that fast. The Bucks had time. They could have gotten a good shot. It's a one-possession game. And then he just kind of like gets caught in the middle of the lane, doesn't want to shoot, and throws that kind of grenade to Malcolm Brogdon in the corner with I believe Siakam was all over Brogdon and Brogdon had nowhere to go at that point it was just like it's one of those things where you're probably going to have some people blaming Brogdon in that moment but like that was just a terrible decision by Eric Bledsoe terrible game management and um, I've been someone who has defended Bledsoe over the course of the season and really wanted him to come through. And he had a game five was a mixed bag for him. Um, He had a couple nice moments and a couple moments where, you know, the ghosts kind of come back to haunt him. Obviously game three and game four were awful, but that one put me over the edge where I just, I'm like, come on, Eric Bledsoe, like what the hell are you doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, we got a question from Jonathan who said, "If the Bucks lose the series, does Eric Bledsoe deserve the majority of the blame?" I thought he was horrible in Game Four, and it seemed like he came out in Game Five playing like he knew his entire reputation was on the line. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it, and he did okay. He, he did no, that. he did really well in the in the first quarter, but that initial energy burst just started to fade. I mean, his shot has just been so off, and he's been compensating rather than you know hesitating. He compensates by what you're saying, which Impressive. is he gets yeah. overly aggressive, right? He forces the issue. He takes shots that maybe he shouldn't. And that's equally as frustrating and equally as damaging. And in some cases, you know, if, if they're not protecting the ball, and I think he had four turnovers in game five, it could arguably be more damaging, right? Because, uh, you know, at least if you're pump faking and passing, someone else gets a, a look at it. Um, if you're, Putting your head down and going nuts and kind of breaking the offense, uh, you know, lots of bad things can happen. And I think, unfortunately for him, that's going to be the story of the series. I don't know if he's the only scapegoat. Uh, you mentioned no, Miritich. He's not. Miritich can be a scapegoat. Um, I think Middleton is going to be in line for some criticism from some people. Personally, I think he's done a pretty good, jo- a pretty good job defensively on Kawhi, and we're seeing Kawhi take his own offensive game to new heights. And like at some point you know, there's not a lot that defense can do there. So, um, I think that explains a little bit of his offensive underperformance is just, you know, the the heavy lift he's got to do on the other end. Um, but there's no question. Like, I think if you're, you know, throwing darts, I think Bledsoe's the the number one guy who's getting them.
0: Yeah. Bledsoe's the easiest target, but I really do think that pretty much everyone involved deserves, um, some scrutiny here because, Middleton is supposed to be the guy who can take over when Giannis is bottled up in the half court and he hasn't been that guy. We've obviously seen Giannis's limits. We've talked about that. Um and I guess that's kind of where I want to end and and it's why this night was sobering for me. It's why I was kind of forlorn at the end here. Keep coming back to that word. It's not just about this series. It's not just about missing out on Bucks Warriors I'm, it's been awesome to see Kawhi put this run together. Like He's been out of this world. But watching tonight, part of what worried me is that we're so all-in on Giannis. You and I have both been there since before you and I even knew each other. <laughs> and his future looks so bright. But watching this game, it's hard not to rethink how we think about the Bucks' future a little bit. And the series isn't over. I have not booked my flights to Toronto. I'm gonna wait and see what happens in game six. Um I think that Drake predicting an NBA finals berth it bodes
1: well for the Bucks. But like yeah, between that I and c- my plane ticket, we've got a lot of a lot of energy <laughs> on the Bucks side. There's I
0: appreciate you doing your part. Look, uh it really means a no, lot. No, your
1: point's taken. Look, when you can do the obituary stuff later, but uh I'll just say this like taking Giannis out in that situation, you know. First of all, if I was bud, I would not have done that unless Giannis came to me and said, take me out because I mean, this guy's not locked in that long, you know, like, you don't think he's going to remember this. I mean, it reminded me honestly of like a David Blatt decision, right? Where LeBron's like, I'm just going to scrap it. Like I was ready for Giannis to just scrap it and just check himself right back in the game. And honestly, I think he probably should (laughs) have, um, yeah, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, if Giannis, well, God forbid, if if Giannis ever leaves Milwaukee, I think people would point back to that and be like, look, that was just weird. We don't know why he did it, but it, you know, it felt like almost like a yeah. breach of trust to me. If I was a player in that situation and he just is taking you out without you're okay, I mean, injured or not, come on.
0: Right. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that that's going to be some sort of watershed moment, but it does point to one of the questions I've had, which is like, you know, Bud hasn't made many adjustments on offense to get Giannis free and to try to make his life easier, and that is a little disappointing to me. And then the defense has gotten weird. You're right, like Brooke Lopez guarding Kawhi in the fourth quarter is a is a bad idea. It's a straight idea. up disaster. He's poorly of the scheme, and you know that's on Bud well, too. Can I, and again, can I
1: add one thing on that though? I almost wanted Giannis to step up in that fourth quarter and be like, look, it's clear this series is on the line right here, right? This is the hinge game. Yeah. Kawhi's going into takeover mode. It's my turn to guard him, right? And it's sometimes that can backfire like when Kyrie Irving does it against Giannis. And it's just like, dude, no, but what are you doing? Right. It's like it's like hero ball defense. But that's what I wanted to see from him. Yeah, and I'm
0: bummed that we haven't yet gotten to see that, and um, that may come in Game 6 and Game 7. Again, the series is not over, but like, couple buds, kind of head-scratching decisions with some of what we've seen from Middleton and Bledsoe, who are the guys that Milwaukee does seem to be invested in long-term... And then like the one guy who has actually been really impressive in almost every game, except for game four, Malcolm Brogdon has been great. And I don't know whether they're going to be able to afford him this summer. And the idea that they potentially sunk $70 million into Eric Bledsoe and chose him over Malcolm Brogdon, the one guy you can count on to kind of create in the half court and, uh, and be a, a, a really nice running mate with Giannis. Um, is again just pretty sobering. Well, like, you you, you know what I would do. See. You know what I
1: would do there. Uh, what we all got another email saying, "Hey, is Bledsoe an 82 game player or a 16 game player?" I think there's a pretty strong argument. He's an 82 game player. He had an awesome regular season, so I hate kind of dogging him out because of uh, a rough two weeks. Yeah. But he hasn't been good enough for them, and I think uh, these issues could persist again as they continue to like you know eye long uh, you know long playoff runs in the future. Uh, he's going to be a question mark indefinitely, right? Like until they win the title, people are going to be questioning Eric Bledsoe from here on out. Why don't you call Uh up James Jones down in Phoenix and say, hey man, like I know it's a new era for you. (laughs) How about we trade you back, Eric Bledsoe? We're not even going to (laughs) really, we're not going to ask for that much. You know, Uh, you can get yourself that starting point guard you've been looking for. You can sell your fan base on an easy win. Uh, Just give us a little bit of salary cap relief and then pay Brogdon and then you're good to go. Yeah.
0: Um well that that's about where my head was at throughout game 5 because Milwaukee was winning most of that game but Toronto was outplaying them from about the middle of the first quarter on for sure. and so I was just I was pretty worried. Um but the and the last point on the Raptors is you know I was in Toronto for games 1 and 2 of the Sixers series and then I went back for the end of that six, six, Sixers series. But after game one, I talked to their GM, Bobby Webster. And after we we did a quick kind of interview and afterwards, we're just kind of making small talk. And I said, look, so like if you were telling the story of this team, like what would you say is is kind of the takeaway to you? And he said, you know, I don't know where this season is going to go, but I do know or I get the sense being around the team that we're a lot more mentally tough, and toughness is not something I worry about with this team. And um, and we kind of left it at that and was just like, you know, that wherever we go, we're going to be on the same page is, is I think, his exact quote. And, um, and we left it at that, and I said, look, man, you guys are playing about as well as any team in the playoffs. Good luck. Congratulations. Then they go out and lose Game 2 against the Sixers. They look doomed. But to see them come, come back over and over again throughout this playoffs really has been cool. And um, so hats off to the Raptors. They have not gotten a lot of love on this podcast over the course of the year. But like Kawhi is on another planet right now. And this is just it's all kind of taking on a life of its own.
1: Uh, there's no question about it. Um, the, the mental resolve stuff has been there. I mean, Kyle Lowry, too, like we kind of glossed over him, but he came out to his postgame press conference wearing an oven mitt because his hand is screwed up. <laughs> And he's been a winning plays guy uh, been this entire series, you know, game after game, after game, after game. So, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, the only silver lining I can take is that uh, this team looks a lot better without DeRozan. You know, that's the only thing I can, I can tell <laughs> myself. For your personal brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, all right. Well, should we move on and talk a little All-NBA, Ben? Yeah, we should. I mean, I didn't see too many surprises. I don't know. How how deep do you want to really go on this? I mean, I thought KD got snubbed. He should have been first team over Paul George. I thought LaMarcus okay. Aldridge should have been in over LeBron James. And then I guess the headline is basically you guys don't have to play uh, pay Bradley Beal a Supermax, right?
0: <laughs> I guess that's the headline. I don't know if enough people actually care about Bradley Beal or what the Wizards pay or don't pay to make that the the top headline. Um But uh, hold on. Actually, first, we are going to take a quick break for
1: a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting its the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com.
0: All right, let's get back to it, Ben. So as far as... Yeah, I think the headline is probably Clay Thompson not getting All-NBA. Wait a minute. How did you feel
1: about that? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do we even mention him when we were doing this? Like, didn't I raise him maybe at one point and it was like, ah, nah, he's not really a serious candidate. Like, when you actually had to make these awards picks at the end of the regular season, I don't feel like he had any buzz or any juice on, on that conversation. Mm. Um, I definitely thought hard about Clay, And usually with these votes,
0: I get like a month down the road and begin to regret one pick. And the one pick that I regretted this year was Clay, because my theory for picking him would have just been that All-NBA, for me, I I like to think about it as just the 15 best players. Um, And then there are some extenuating circumstances when guys have really weird seasons where you have to start kind of uh, making some exceptions there but like I just am w- generally picking on talent what I struggled with with Clay though is like he was not the same guy for the first two and a half months of the season uh, maybe even longer than that like he was really kind of struggling and then picked it up in January and February and through the rest of the season but like and that the outcry about him not being all NBA rings a little bit hollow to me.
1: Yeah, I, again, I don't I didn't think he was that serious of a candidate. I mean, you look at his stats, like whether it's the rebounds, the assists, I mean, uh, you know, the all around stuff that people kind of knock clay for, it, you know, wasn't there. They kind of underperformed as a team this year. So it wasn't a situation where every single person had to be rewarded. I think also yeah. similar to what we've talked about with Steph and Draymond, you know, sacrificing uh you know, awards and and, uh, good cheers and everything else like that. You know, Clay has to do that when Durant's on the court. I thought Durant during the regular season was the most consistent and important player for them. That's why I thought he should have been first team and in that MVP conversation. So I I didn't think that they played well enough during the regular season to get three guys on this year. And, you know, if we were trying to do revisionism and say, okay, who got snubbed? To me, like, Draymond's more of a snub than Clay. If we're going to say, oh, you know, like, let's rethink all these decisions after what we've seen in the playoffs. Like... Draymond's definitely one of the six best forwards or the nine best bigs in the playoffs. There's no question about that, right? So if you're going to try to use that logic to justify why it was a big, you know, snub for Clay, then I would say uh, it applies even more to a guy like Draymond.
0: Well, yeah, and I, I, Draymond was was a disaster for a, a much bigger stretch of the season than Clay was. Um, I thought he just he struggled just enough for me to. Whittle it down to Kemba versus Beal for that last spot. And if you recall, I didn't make a decision on Kemba versus Beal until that Friday when we had to turn in our ballots. And I believe I I texted you and we kind of worked it out over text. I felt bad choosing Kemba over Beal, but like when you look at their numbers, they're awfully similar. And Kemba won, I believe it was eight more games in Charlotte and just, seem to be a little bit more of a winning player. The numbers were a little bit less empty with him than they seem to be with Beal. It Um, kind of
1: feels to me like it's a moot point though, because I don't think Charlotte's not going to give him the supermax, are they? Are they going to give him every single penny? I don't really see that. Um, If they did, that would be... (laughs) I'm talking about mortgaging your franchise's future. That would be a mess. And then for Beal, like now he can't legally get it, but that would have been a pretty dubious decision by... Uh, Wizards management as well. So I wasn't saying that either Draymond or Clay deserved it. I just think the reason why Clay is getting all this attention is because Golden State's coming in just red hot here over the last two weeks and because he's had the ability to show everything that he can do and he's played uh, fantastic defense. Like I thought it was completely fitting that he made all defensive but didn't make all NBA. That sounds right on both counts to me uh, if you're going off of the regular season performance.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of that, really. And it just... I will say there are times when you look up and see Clay have a have an awesome playoff game and feel like an idiot for voting for Kemba or Beal yeah. or whoever it may no, be I hear versus you. where
1: I don't like rewarding those losing like players, and I think that's why he rolled his eyes. Right? It's like, oh come on, Kemba Walker, really? <laughs>
0: yeah, and I don't blame him for rolling his eyes at all of but, us.
1: Like it's a fair
0: stance for him as well. But
1: at the same point, like every single guy on all NBA was his team's like number one or maybe number two option, right? Or would be capable of yeah. being a number one option. I think the only exception was Rudy Gobert, and you know that's basically your defensive player of the year, right? Like everybody else is basically lead ball handler or, or team's leading scorer. On all three teams, um, and for Clay, he's his, his the fourth most important person within their offense, right? So right. he would be clearly sort of the uh, you know the the thumb sticking out sideways of this group.
0: Yeah, um, and honestly, the the quote he had was whatever. I'd rather win a championship than make third team All NBA which is, is the right way to think about it and is a trade-off that like 95% of these guys would make every single time, particularly because someone like Kemba is not getting the super max offer anyways. Right. That's, that's um, what I'm saying. So, and look,
1: and I think he also said, how can you get over this snubbing? And he said rings. And it's like, yeah, that's why Clay's going to be a hall of famer. Yeah, and, I
0: have an amazing life. I'm going to be royalty in the Bay Area for the next 50 years. And look,
1: Clay's going to be a hall of famer and Kemba's not, right? So yeah. I mean, yeah. who cares about this? <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> it will all work out. A uh, couple specific questions: Ajay says, "Is there a good way to redo the super max structure in the NBA? This is just not working. How about making the incremental increase above a standard max contract non-punitive to a team's salary cap?" To me, that's the obvious solution. I will say, I, I'm proud of our podcast, Ben, because we were no, earlier no, 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 on no, no, no. this. Slow down, than- slow
1: down. <laughs> Don't try to share the credit. Don't get humble, Andrew. This is one of these situations mm-hmm. where you're trying to use the royal Wii, and I always call you off for having a mouse in your pocket. You've been banging on the Supermax for about 18 <laughs> months. I don't want any, any of this credit. Just like you know, just go ahead and say, "Yo, I called this, uh, everybody else is coming back around, now what? That's what you need to say right
0: now. Yeah, I, I was the canary in the coal mine because of the John Wall situation, and I was staring yeah. it all in F- the face. zero. And, um, <laughs> yeah, let me tell you, that canary died, <laughs> um, but... I, yeah, the answer to Ajay's question is is pretty simple. I, I think that the supermax can work if you do make that extra money non-punitive to a team's salary cap. That's a good way to put it, and that's the, that's the simple fix. I don't think you can Go open Slow down. the CBA. Slow down.
1: This is too much lawyer speak. What you're saying is, look, you get a normal max that counts on your salary cap. Anything that goes up to that supermax, that extra percentage for the supermax, the player gets paid, but the team doesn't get charged for it when they're trying to assemble their roster. That's what you're trying to say.
0: Right. Because what we have now, and we've been over this a dozen times over the last two years, is it, it makes life harder for the teams and it makes life harder for the superstars who stay home and stay loyal. And then the team that they stick with has less money to build around them. And they're stuck trying to contend with like Al and it And it's just a tricky situation. And so um, I, I I don't really understand why nobody could have anticipated these problems. I think that it reflects poorly on both the league office and the Players Association. Um, because, you know, well, I'm sure down, that though. there are owners... Because
1: the Players Association, they're saying, you want to give us more money? You want to give the stars more money? And then that's what they got, yeah. right? So why does it reflect poorly on them?
0: Well, yeah, I guess it's not the the players' association's responsibility, but I, I I would think that, like in an ideal world, the players' association would think outside the box and anticipate that some of these um, contracts will will also make life more difficult for the players. And then if you if you keep that extra money uncapped, everybody can win, and it, that includes owners who would. No doubt, be at the bargaining table and say, "Wait a second. That suddenly means that we're going to have to pay all this extra money. Like we have the salary cap for a reason. Um, but ultimately, what happens is these teams that, that throw out Supermax deals, like end up incurring luxury tax payments and become very, very expensive in all sorts of other ways. And so keeping it un- uncapped can work for the teams as well, um, right. and the owners who are notoriously cheap, regardless. Uh, but it, that's a case that like the Players Association or the league like should have been making to the owners. Yeah,
1: so I have a couple of thoughts here. First of all, I'm still waiting for the first player who's gotten a Supermax uh, to come out and say, you know, where's my help, right? I mean, these guys understand yeah. when they're signing that contract that they're about to eat up a huge percentage of their team salary cap, and they have the choice. Just because you're Supermax eligible doesn't mean you have to take it. No one's going to say, hey, you have to sacrifice for the good of the team because that's kind of lunacy, right? But if a -hmm. player was in a position where he's saying, I need to balance my own personal financial interests with our team's ability to construct a winner around me, any of those guys could have just said, you know what? I'm good. Give me the normal max, right? But nobody really has done that, uh, you know, whether it's Harden, Curry, you know, Damian Lord's going to get his, John Wall, who you've mentioned, everything else. Like those guys want every penny. And I think you know, the NBA is such a star driven league that they deserve it. So I don't think that uh, the star players or the or the players association, you know, can really complain about the ramifications of it because they're signing those deals with eyes wide open. You know, if you're James Harden, you're going to be getting 40 something million dollars that like, guess what? Yeah. You know, Daniel House is going to be the guy you're kicking it to. You know what I mean? Like that's already like baked into how it's going to have to go.
0: I, I definitely understand that. But Ultimately, and the NBA is in a really good spot because the players and the league have such a good working relationship, but ultimately it benefits everybody to, to come up with a, a system that uh works best and this system is is suboptimal and i think even adam silver said that in a in a piece with espn today where like there's always ways to improve it. no for
1: sure what i'm um, saying though is if you're the players do you think it's as broken as we in the media or the owners think it is because i think if i'm a top 10 player if i'm chris paul as the executive director of the players association or uh, sorry the president of the players association or if i'm lebron james who was kind of on that panel right when they were negotiating this stuff I think the superstars look at this and are like, this is great. (laughs) like Awesome. (laughs) Like, oh, so you're saying saying, they're going to give us two Brinks trucks instead of one Brinks truck. Perfect. Yeah, I'll I'll be there. Just tell them to show up at 9 a.m.?
0: Damian Lillard, about to sign a $191 million contract, is not losing sleep over the fate of the Supermax and its impact on the NBA. Oh, no, I
1: think that, and yeah, I promise you, during the course of that contract, <laughs> he is not going to be saying, He's going to be okay. Yeah, he's going to be, and he's not going to be saying, Hey, where's my help? You know, like, oh, I'm going to go to my GM and say, Oh, why can't you get me any good players? Well, everybody knows why. Yeah. Like, they understand. Everybody knows the game. The players know it as well as anybody. Hey, one thing on the Supermax, though, and this is just kind of somewhat related because I mentioned Harden earlier and got hit um uh, there mm-hmm. was a report from the athletic today saying that he got into a little bit of an argument with chris paul uh during uh immediately after the game six loss at home to golden state right before they got eliminated and i think i said on this podcast earlier that chris paul like bolted out of the arena he did his like podium uh press conference immediately and then just left like minutes after the game was over um and harden came on the podium and they asked him like, hey, what's going to happen this summer? And he very cryptically said, uh, I know what's going to happen, but then he refused, or I know what needs to happen, but then he refused to reveal what it was. Now I'm just doing some like three-dimensional dot connecting here, but let me ask you, like if you just got into a fight with Chris Paul over, you know, who got the touches and and the ball down the stretch of the the final game of your season, you understand your own salary cap number because you're the franchise guy who they've built around for five years. Chris Paul's already fled the scene because he's so upset with this kind of clashing of, uh, uh, you know, egos or personalities, whatever you want to call it. And then you go up and say that on the podium, am am I reaching here or does, can you, can you see where I'm going? Trouble in paradise, Ben, a player doesn't like playing with Chris Paul bristles under his authority. That sounds completely insane. What I'm saying is, did he just publicly try to trade Chris Paul? That's what I'm asking you.
0: Yeah. Well, um, now that you add that context uh, and the apparent argument in the back hallways of the Toyota Center, perhaps I would believe it. And th- the Rockets have a lot of reasons to, to listen to offers for Chris Paul, particularly because the one thing that we haven't talked about as much, and it, it actually goes back to the Supermax conversation, Tillman Fertita studiously avoiding the luxury tax in a year where the the Rockets had like a real title shot, is pretty shocking. I cannot believe that he was able to do that without taking that much national heat and um and so potentially trading Chris Paul would be another right. kind of step in that direction. That's what I'm saying. Right? Like
1: if if we're having this supermax conversation, how do you build the best team around a guy who you have to pay that huge number to? Right, uh, having yeah. a second huge contract on your books, it devoted to one player is a real tough ask. It's hard to swallow. Like if that guy's a superstar, then you can do it and try to make it work. If he's not, you're probably forced in that situation to trade him off and try to spread his salary cap number among multiple rotation players, right? So, right. I don't know. It, it adds up to me. And it's a screwed up system right now. <laughs>
0: like it just there are some simple fixes out there. It'll probably be in a healthier place whenever they renegotiate the CBA. I believe it's 2023, maybe 24. Um but like it's it's a tough situation when you ask players to stay home and then you create all these weird incentives for the teams to get under the luxury tax. Because the luxury tax becomes like crazy punitive over the over the years. Right. Um, well, that would—that's where
1: your fix comes in, right? If you're saying, "Hey, take away that extra money," because that would also yeah. not account against your luxury tax. So, if you had one of those players, you wouldn't be getting, you know, basically charged for it multiple times, or potentially facing that repeater tax year after year, where you're not just only right. paying that extra money and having less uh, flexibility, but you're also, you know, paying the luxury taxes associated with it. Yeah, I mean, that idea makes a lot of sense. Um, Let me ask you, though, is this issue such a fundamental problem that if you were advising the owners to opt out when they have the opt out, would you do it?
0: Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, we're going to see these guys because, again, it's it's a really cool thing about basketball right now. The Players Association and the league seem to have a pretty healthy working relationship. So I imagine that we're going to see them opt out of each CBA whenever they have the opportunity just because that's an opportunity to kind of improve things. This is not going to be like a David Stern staring contest. Uh, but I think both sides recognize that like the business of basketball is in a good place and it's worth kind of investing the time and energy to to tweak the system wherever they can.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, it's so, funny. I sound like a, a rep for the Players Association now or, or the league, but like,
0: I do think that's sort of what's happening.
1: Yeah, I can see it. I mean, it's funny because it affects each team so disproportionately, right? Like if you're any of the other teams looking at the Wizards, you're like, oh, I love the Supermax. (laughs) This just screwed them for the next five years. This is such a great competitive advantage, right? And there's only going to be cross them off. (laughs) How many teams are going to wind up being screwed by this? Honestly, like seven, maybe at the end of the day, like there's only so many teams that are players who are going to be able to qualify for it. There's only some percentage of the players who qualify, who are actually going to want it rather than having the flexibility. Right. And then there's only, you know, some players who are going to be able to have enough clout locally to be able to get the team to sign off on it. Right. Which is why Damian Lord is such an obvious example because he kind of checks all those boxes as a franchise face and all that. Um, Right. So well, and it's
0: it's it's interesting. I think the central problem and there are a lot of people who are like, "Oh, the media shouldn't be voting on it." That's the dumbest part of this whole criticism. I think the media takes it really really seriously and more seriously than any other
1: b- voting. The, the media uh, body got it would. right, period. You know, and all the players yeah. are saying the players know. The players don't know. We've seen the players all-star votes and they're horrible.
0: Right. And uh, that's the central Supermax problem to me right now is that the number of players who can actually make those deals
1: worthwhile are, there's maybe five to seven, <laughs> I mean, 10 tops. Let me ask you, who um, actually has made it? Because that sounds like a big number to me when you said five, I was like, really? It might be. Because the, yeah. the only one who I well, can think of who's actually justified it so far, hasn't it been Harden? I mean- Harden, Harden and Steph. And, Steph, and his just kicked in, When right? he
0: signs it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hold so, on though. Like, there's
1: is, there's a, a handful. Is Giannis going to sign it though?
0: Mm, I don't know. I don't know. streets are talking, Andrew. Streets are talking. Yeah, <laughs> are they? Okay. Well, if I were Giannis, I would. I would maybe try to come up with. Um, let's let's sign a three year deal or a four year deal. Let's not necessarily lock ourselves in for life. Um, just just saying. And watching some of these blood so performances. Yeah, but I, I'm just um, not
1: totally sure he's gonna take it at that moment we'll see um but uh, yeah if he did if he got through the summer without taking it it wouldn't surprise me at all but seriously like i don't think that westbrook one's gonna look good the john wall one is no. already just a fat l for, well, for your entire city no
0: and it and and here's the issue is it's right now the criteria is overbroad so you have guys like like it came down to that final all nba spot where it's clay Bradley Beal, or Kemba Walker, and people are like, oh, so who's going to get the Supermax offer? None of those guys are worth paying $45 million a year. So that speaks poorly of the system itself, and I think a potential fix would be to say to the owners, all right, we're going to keep this extra money uncapped. I know that's going to piss off roughly half of these teams, whatever. And in exchange, maybe you have to make... Uh, two all NBA teams in a row before you're eligible or two or two of three or three of four or something along yeah, those or lines just take to try out that, and at
1: least tighten. Right. Or at least take out that all NBA third team. Right. Um, because yeah. that's really where you come into like the questionable candidates like wasn't well all NBA third team to qualify. Yes. Yeah. So yes, that,
0: and Lillard, Lillard is All NBA second team, and he's worth it. He's the guy who can really like anchor your team no matter what happens, and so it makes sense that he's getting that offer. But like Kemba, it does.
1: But everybody can see that's a bad. But idea. you've seen the numbers, the projected numbers for Lillard. I mean, that deal gets pretty ugly and pretty dicey by the end of it, right? So that may not, actually not, even though he's like a perfectly deserving candidate, right? It still might not actually yeah. pay off, and that's why I keep coming back to like other than Harden. I'm not sure who else has made one of these deals pay off. And that's the real problem to me, I think, if I'm the owners and why it would frustrate me so much is because even in the best case scenarios, uh, like it's working for one team, right? Uh, And and it's causing complications for them too. So if if you're saying, hey, the rule isn't really working and it's having all these horrible unintended consequences, uh, that's a loss on both sides.
0: (laughs) Well, and you know what? It's funny because we've talked about the healthy working relationship between the players in the league. Let me tell you one thing. That money and this Supermax model is probably never coming back. Like that Now that that concession has been made, I, I would imagine that Michelle Roberts is going to say... We believe that superstars are worth a little bit more and worth X amount of the salary cap. And that's the way it is. And
1: we're not. (laughs) That's what I'm saying, man. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I, if I were them, I'm like, what do you mean there's a problem? What problem? (laughs) Like the the paychecks are coming (laughs) through. I'm cashing. I'm like, what, what, what issue? I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, well, just make the extra money uncapped, okay? As a, a person who is living through the John Wall era, I just please let's change some of this somehow. Hey, um, um, real but, quick, um, speaking
1: of the John Wall thing, though, I mean, this was kind of a big week for your Washington Wizards because you had Tim Connolly, who was linked to that Wizards opening job, you know, after Ernie got fired in April for basically five or six mm-hmm. weeks straight. He winds up, you know, exchanging numbers or however you want or whatever euphemism you want to use in, in terms of offers and, and the back and forth and all that. But he winds up not taking that job. He goes back to Denver and it sounds like he's probably gonna get a, a new deal, probably a bump on, on his contract to stay there with the Nuggets. And you know, he was just basically saying he had unfinished business, he built the whole roster there in Denver, and he didn't want to, uh-huh. you know, balance at, at such a, a point of positive momentum. And I totally get that because they had a dream season, their team's super young and they're basically all his guys, you know, from Jokic on down. Um, but I think it's more interesting and again, not trying to rub salt in your wounds here after we just talked about <laughs> yeah, what are we doing the here? wall thing for 10 minutes? <laughs> I
0: don't like where this
1: is going. No, but we need to have a conversation here about this Wizards GM search, don't we? Uh because yeah. it's gone on for more than a month. They had one clear target who, you know, we were reporting within what, 24 hours of Ernie being fired that was going to be their guy. They they went through the process of interviewing a round of candidates. But it sure seemed like the whole thing was structured around the idea of like we're just gonna go make you know Connolly an offer he can't refuse. He's the hometown kid, he's gonna come mm-hmm. back and save the day. The flirtation lasted like 48 hours. I mean it was over pretty quickly. So clearly, you know, Ted Leonsis's pitch, whether it was money or control or whatever it was, wasn't really good enough to kind of break through. And then all of a sudden it just kind of blows up in his face, and now they're apparently kind of you know kicking the tires maybe on some other candidates. What's your take on this? I mean, you really haven't addressed it too much on the podcast. Uh, I mean, are you were you really sad that you didn't get Connolly? What's what's your overall um, sense of the uh the landscape?
0: Yeah, I'm kind of staying out of this in general because I definitely have takes on some of the candidates, but I don't want to say anything that I might regret if they actually end up in DC and then I'm like <laughs> Perfect. Basically, in the same work workplace for like nine. You try not to bite um,
1: any hands prematurely that might feed you.
0: Yeah, you know, like we'll see where it all shakes out. Connolly is someone mm, who I out. think is a B plus. I don't really understand. He's not a good enough GM to where I would have said we're going to put everything on hold for two and a half months and see where we are with Connolly. Maybe it wasn't two and a half months, but it felt like two and a half months. And yeah. like, and, and, it's and not make over our yet, pitch right? to this guy. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not over yet. And you look at the process. You had a great column on it this week. I enjoyed it. Um but the Wizards should have known that they were firing Ernie Grunfeld as early as January. Um and, and really you could even go back to like 2012 when they they knew where this was all headed. But uh but particularly like midway through this season I, I imagine that they had to make peace with the idea that it was going to be time for a fresh start at the end of the season, and so to not have an, a set list of options and to somehow, for for some reason, zero in on Tim Connolly as like the potential savior is a, a kind of a head scratching move as far as I'm concerned. Because um, Connolly, he's done a really good job cultivating a great culture in Denver. I think they're great. Uh, in in large part because of their scouting and how well they've drafted. And I don't know how much of that I would credit Connolly with. Um, like, I understand how when you're a GM, you end up getting credit for all the hits. But, like, I don't think Connolly was out there in Bosnia, like, pacing around uh, Jokic games. And so, like, it just... The idea that he was the guy that was going to be, like, the 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 savior always kind of rang hollow to me. But now it's, like... You, to not really have a clear plan B is also um, a little demoralizing. So we'll see. I'm going to give them a chance to salvage things. But like, yeah, this none of this inspires a whole lot of confidence. In yeah, it. it's
1: also tough because, you know, Ted Leonsis came out kind of beating his chest right off the top saying, this is this great job. Here's why it's so great. And I agreed with a lot of things he said in terms of building up, uh, you know, the city of D.C., his patience as an owner, the resources he was willing mm-hmm. to commit and all that stuff. But if that's your message, you can't get outbid for your top target, right? And that's why I think it to me, it kind of comes back to it's a, a failure of a process, rather than maybe the failure of the result. Like if you came in and yeah. identified this guy as your main guy, and you put a lot of the other stuff on hold, waiting for the Nuggets to kind of get played out of the playoffs, you better come through with the money and, and like take care of that thing.
0: Well, There's that, and it's also not that hard to do a little digging around the league to find out how likely it is that Connolly would actually leave Denver, what it would take to get him. I mean, apparently there was a dispute over how many years right. he was offering and, like,
1: and whether there was- They have a search firm too, right? I mean, that's part of, like, that's yeah. their job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, honestly, that was my question. It's like, so what were the
0: consultants doing for the last two months? If, if all it took was literally like 36 hours for Connolly to show up, meet with Ted Leonsis and say, ah, I'm actually gonna stay in Denver. I'm yeah, good. It, I, got, I just got a new contract. It, offer. it honestly like, feels
1: like they just Googled, the search firm, they just Googled, like NBA executive born- in Maryland, NBA executive born in District of Columbia, right? And like, oh, hey, Danny Ferry, here we go. Perfect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, let me tell you something. I'm willing to give Danny Ferry the benefit of the doubt, but I do remember living through his era as Cavs GM with the first seven years of LeBron's career. And it does not inspire me with a whole lot of hope and optimism
1: for what he would do in D.C. You you think, but he Um, might get Shaq again. I mean, right? Like he could, you think Shaq, (laughs) who's a better value right now, Shaq or Dwight Howard? Dude,
0: what's Jamario Moon up to these days? You know, let's make some moves. Let's bring, make the Wizards great again, I guess. (laughs) Whatever. Um, God. Uh, All right. There are two more. Big topics that we will hit very quickly since we've already done too much uh, on everything else. But Watani in Yokohama, Japan, hit us with an email titled Kevin the Scapegoat. Uh, I think we should work on that nickname. But he says, off the So we know Golden State has looked great without Kevin Durant. Given the unlikely scenario that they lose the championship to either Milwaukee or Toronto. Isn't it possible that Durant becomes the scapegoat in Golden State? Um, and this sounds kind of hot take-ish, but it's something that I have seriously considered. Uh, it's, a, it's a non-zero possibility that Durant comes back and Golden State's chemistry gets kind of screwed up. And they wind up struggling and the story kind of takes on a life of its own. So what do you think about where we are with KD right now? Because he's like, he's on Twitter again, which is not a great sign. And then um, yeah. the injury stuff is starting to get a little yeah, weird. Yeah, the
1: update today was that he's not going to be ready for the, the opening of the finals, which means, you know, it, it sounds like game three might be like the early target for what they're looking for. As somebody who yeah. always defends Kevin Durant, I think the narrative battle has already been lost, right? Because he's gonna he's in a no-win situation. It's now lose, 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 because they've played so well without him that if they win the title with or without him, people are going to say they didn't need him. If they lose Mm -hmm. the title, people are going to say it was his fault, either because he was injured um, or because he came back and, you know, ruined things or whatever else. And so if they had played differently without him, if Steph had continued some of those earlier struggles he was dealing with in the postseason, if it had been more difficult, if they had to kind of like gut it out and the offense wasn't working and like, you know, they get pushed by like this undermanned Blazers team, then people would, I think the general consensus would be hey they really you know Kevin really does matter he's important here and you know how I feel about his value I'm just saying like I think the narrative in terms of like the top level and what people are going to be yelling about on television what the casual fans are going to be thinking I think he's already lost I think it's a a no-win situation unless he comes back and like single-handedly outduels Kawhi by putting up 45 points in back-to-back games uh, to like seal the win I think he's basically lost already. And I hate to say that. I think it's a horrible ending to what was, uh, or either way, it will be kind of an unsatisfying ending to what was an incredible postseason run for him individually. And for him, I think it's yeah. going to justify everything that he hates about the media and about the fans and the conversation around him, right? Like, all of these eventualities kind of end poorly for him. And uh, I could just see, you know, I think it wasn't a surprise he was on Twitter to me because I think it would just grind my gears if I was in his position. And it's something that he right. can't control. And there really is no way out. Like how does he flip this narrative back on its head besides like completely outplaying Kawhi Leonard like single-handedly and, you know, Steph and Draymond like falling to pieces and Kevin's a savior. Like otherwise he's gonna be on the short end of the stick well, no matter what.
0: Um, I agree that, I'd say most of the scenarios in play end with Kevin Durant taking all kinds of grief from people who say that his titles over the last couple of years had an asterisk and this one, they didn't even need him or, or like nobody's going to knock him for being injured if they lose without him. And if anything, that might be validating. I think the one scenario in play, and by the way, you bring up him and Kawhi that took me back to, I believe like mid November Do you remember that Warriors game where I don't even know if Steph was healthy, but it was just Kawhi versus Durant and they both were out of their minds trading shot for shot down the stretch. Do you remember that at all? Uh,
1: I don't offhand, but that sounds like what would happen when you get those two guys on the court. It was Honestly, it was awesome. Kevin Durant,
0: I believe, hit a three from like the logo. Um, I, I think the Raptors ended up winning in the end, but it's one of those things that like, is is lost to time because it happens in the middle of the regular season. But um, it's a reason to get excited about a potential Raptors-Warriors finals. Um, I'm talking myself into it as we go on the podcast here. The Durant thing, if I were him, um, I well, if I were him and I were a bad person, I would be rooting for the Warriors to be down 2-1 going into Game 4 at Oracle, at which point... Durant could come back and be the savior who helps them win the title and um, and validates his own role and value over the last couple years. But saving that scenario, I I don't know. It's get things have gone a little sideways for him. I I do think that the injury is serious, but it's one of those things where this whole situation is so weird that like I could see him potentially just sort of electing to sit out regardless because of how strange it's all gotten. I don't know. I don't like it's it's hard to read where things go from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we know where it's going to go. I think this is setting the table for him kind of leaving either way. Right. And probably not under the best circumstances. I want to double back, though, this idea that if he's not healthy and they lose, I still think he's going to get blamed because I think what people will say is, He wasn't all the way in all season long. You know, he was kind of a distraction. Uh, You know, maybe he held the team back at certain points. And then when they needed him, he wasn't healthy. And this was the series where it was the most important for him to be out there and doing it. And he wasn't there. We have to judge him based on the results. If he wants credit for his titles for being on the court against LeBron these last years, then we have to hold him accountable for not being on the court this year. Like, I even think that that Mm. scenario... It might be the least fair of all the criticism, but I still think people are so excited to criticize him for everything that they would be doing the exact same thing. I, I, <laughs> like, to be honest, like- I don't the, know.
0: The, That's just such a transparently bad faith right. criticism that I like right. to think most of like the basketball yeah. world will be above well, come it, on. but maybe- well, I not. remember
1: an entire year of somebody calling him a role player and that was pretty bad faith. And we, had, <laughs> we, we sat well, through like, that. And like that, what I'm saying is, you know, if he's injured- and Steph doesn't play well, are people going to blame Steph for not playing well, or are they going to explain it because of Kevin's injury? I guess that's my point. You know what I mean? They're gonna like, of, no. of course, Steph's getting locked up. He has to face five defensive players. Like, I feel like that's where the conversation goes. On the hierarchy of who gets uh, the blame in Golden State, Kevin's always one. Everybody else is always two.
0: Yeah, um, I, that that sort of makes him seem like a more of a victim than he's actually been but over the last couple of years, I think. um He's had a role in some of this. And some of it is legitimate basketball criticism and, and or not even necessarily criticism, just observation. I do feel a little validated by how much fun the Warriors have become in his absence. Um, but I think everybody should be rooting for him to come back because more than anything else, I don't want it to end with him on the sidelines for the last two weeks of this Warriors era. Like that sort of would leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, I think. Um, And I I hope he leaves this summer because I think that makes the league more interesting. But ending the last three years on such a weird, anti-climatic note would would be a bummer for everyone.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't see how we avoid that other than the one scenario mm-hmm. that I drove. Like yeah. I think it's ending on a poor note basically every direction because the momentum's already been building. I mean that's the one downside of this long time off for Golden State is that like instead of talking about what they did against Portland or instead of having people like, you know, look head to head, how are they gonna try to handle Kawhi and all that, the whole conversation, whether it was the one that, you know, Duran himself got sucked into on Twitter or everybody else, it's all been you know, do they need to yeah. rant? Is he necessary? Uh, is he going to, when's he going to be healthy? It's all these things that are non basketball related or the way they get framed, I guess, like you're saying, they're kind of bad faith arguments. They're not really like fundamental. The conversation is not where it needs to be. It's not where it was a month and a half ago when we were saying, look at how incredible he is one-on-one or one-on-three taking on these clippers, 45 points, 50 points. Like that was the basketball conversation about him. And I, I don't think we're going to get back there. You know, like, I, I hope we do. Yeah. Like I hope it comes to a situation where he's fully healthy, ready to go game three, outduels Kawhi Leonard, or at least like holds up his end of the bargain, turns into a classic finals. That just seems like we're holding out such a sliver of hope at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, like, yeah. And let me tell you something. I mean, I'm I'm trying to be
0: nice in part because I just really like Kevin Durant and and I want things to work out for him I I think the most realistic way to look at this is to say This is an era that has always been at least as weird as it's been cool most people will probably remember it as weirder than it's been cool and so Ending on a on a bizarre note is probably appropriate. Um and I hope that wherever he goes next, he's able to find kind of the more of the fulfillment and more of the validation that he's been seeking. Um, and we'll see if that happens. But it's, uh, I mean, like even this week, like the the Broussard stuff, the back and forth, it's just, it's a bad look for for Kevin Durant to be involved in that. And I wish he had somebody around to say like, no, like this is just, this is not the way you want to spend the conference finals, but um, Such as like, no, I, I, I thought it
1: was a bad look for him. It's a bad look for the Warriors. Why are you doing this? You know, come on. And yeah. uh, we, we've yeah. we've already scolded him for his Twitter stuff hundreds of times. So you can just go replay the tape on that one. Uh, it was totally unnecessary. He's playing these semantic details. Okay, is it text? Is it DMs and all this? I mean, come on. Like you know, yeah. like a reporter of his stature is not going to be making up the idea that he's gone back and forth with you on certain things. And um, I thought that was to, to try to paint him as a liar. Uh, you know, it's just. The media is such an easy target, you know, in this day and age that that really is what bothers me more than anything. It's like you're subscribing to like the worst habits of America's worst people when, when you start just like, right. you know, trying to say that the media is lying and making all this stuff up and whatever. It's like, come on. But um yeah. So again, fresh start will probably be healthy for everybody.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably the well, takeaway. Well, my
1: takeaway is that, you know, if you don't change what's aggravating you inside, it doesn't matter where you go. If you can't be satisfied in Golden State, you're not going to be satisfied in New York Knicks. I can promise you that, right? So yeah. the, the process of self-improvement begins within.
0: Okay, well, we will see. Um, last question. Brandon in, L- in LA says, what was the funnier slash weirder moment from first take? Magic bringing up the fact that he was going to quit after three years and everyone knew it, or him totally butchering Swaggy P's name. I actually didn't hear him butcher Swaggy P's name. I believe he called him Shaggy P or something like that. Uh, To me, the funniest moment of that entire interview was when Stephen A brought up uh, Avika Zubac as a it's a, like a mistake that was made under the Lakers regime and Magic was just like oh you want to talk about Zubach let's talk about it and then had him had Stephen A list off Zubach's actual numbers this year um, it was just kind of it was honestly like you and I having a podcast and so I enjoyed that back and forth but um, what do you think of the, the whole interview in general
1: um, I thought it was a horrible look for Magic. I think that he's he went in there with one express purpose, which was you know basically to defend himself and to uh, defend his own ego and to try to mm-hmm. you know shift the discussion away from his own performance and his own work ethic, which clearly injured him. And you know I understand that. Like I get pretty defensive if people question me on those kinds of things too. Um, but ultimately, you're leaving an organization that you've had a 30-something year relationship with, you've called the owner your sister, you've volunteered to participate in free agency meetings. They're hiring a coach and introducing the coach like an hour after this interview. You've already been lambasted by LeBron James for blindsiding the team once when you you know resigned right before the final game of the season. Um, and you're taking yeah. all of those other data points, all the other people who are going to be impacted directly and indirectly whether it's their feelings whether it's their own reputations whether it's the easiness of doing their jobs going forward whether it's the stakes of the draft coming up and free agency whether it's frank vogel's just like entire credibility whether it's rob polinka's like ability to you know maintain his job and just move forward you're throwing all of those things out the window that you know supposed relationship you have with lebron james you're throwing it all out the window to settle scores, you know, and to basically, you know, put people down. And to me, it's <laughs> yeah. just, it was unprofessional, right? Let's,
0: let's dig into the the real Zubach playoff numbers, Magic Johnson says, live on television on Monday morning. Um, I hear you, and I I think I agree with some of that. Um, there's no question that he went on there for self-serving reasons, that, and it does leave him looking kind of small, which is something that should never be said of Magic Johnson. Um, at the same time, I thought it was incredible television. And he was he's the only person I know in sports who can kind of just smile and laugh his way through ethering an entire organization from top to bottom. And um, I, I appreciate him for being like 180 degrees different from his Twitter account. In real life, uh, because like on Twitter, he's just like so unbelievably boring and sanitized at every turn. And then in real life, like if you put Magic Johnson in front of a microphone, he can't help but say reckless shit that is probably a bad idea for him to be saying in public. And yet there he went. Um, yeah, and that's the, thing. the like, one thing. I mean,
1: do you want a soap opera? Is that the incredible TV you're looking for? Or do you want to, you know, you want to pursue greatness? I'll no. tell you what's great television. The Golden State Warriors in the Western Conference Finals. That was fabulous television. <laughs> do you, want, you so- want to know? Do you want a soap opera or do you want to pursue greatness? Is A plus. Well, I mean, come on. I think the Open Floor Globe, email us. OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. What's better television? Magic Johnson airing wow. out all of his coworkers? Or an organization spending years carefully assembling a great team that can play at the super high level and execute. I mean, even the Toronto Raptors are a better television than Magic. And what I don't understand—it depends on what version
0: of the Warriors we're talking about. First of all, the uh, the Steph Warriors—I'm am I'm right there well, with you,
1: look, man. I think the truth is—I'll tell you—the Santa Cruz Warriors are better TV than Magic Johnson airing people out. Like I just—I think it's such a terrible I don't know. look. It it's was, unprofessional. And it sets them back. Uh, if you're a free agent, if you're Kawhi Leonard, and you're thinking, "Hey, I can go head to head with Giannis and win in a game five on the road," and everyone's going to, you know, hype me up as maybe the best player alive and all that, or I can go play in mm-hmm. LeBron's shadow and worry that Magic's going to go on first take and dog me out to Max Kellerman. Like, come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that's very very fair. I guess my my two counters. Well, I have three counters. Number one. I, what I'm saying is, it was just surreal and kind of incredible to be walking around Monday morning and get texts being like, turn on ESPN, look at Magic on first take. And like none of this was planned, and I think that was part of what made it so incredible. And then number two... Oh yeah! I think total that coincidence the, that he goes
1: on that show the same morning of Vogel's press conference. Well, oh right, boy, so it must have been it a scheduling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it was planned. I didn't have any advance notice. You didn't have any advance notice. None oh, look, of us did. I wouldn't so have. It, was, it felt. I'll tell you
1: the truth. I wouldn't have tuned in even if I did have advance notice because I've watched this organization struggle for six straight years. They've got an owner. Who doesn't have the experience of winning. They've got a GM now who mm-hmm. doesn't have the experience of winning. They don't have a president anymore, but his track record as an executive was not great. They've got a brand new coach in Frank Vogel who has no relationship with LeBron James. They've got a bunch of young players who can't stay on the court. So they can do the days of our lives thing for another 10 years. And I understand people are going to yeah. sign up and watch the car crash because people love reality TV. Uh, ultimately, it's unfulfilling and it was unbecoming Hold of Magic on. Johnson as a basketball great to do that.
0: That is very fair. I'm not talking about the Lakers soap opera. I'm saying if Stephen A. Smith and Magic Johnson want to start a podcast, I will subscribe to an hour of Stephen A. and Magic every Monday morning I'm in. Uh, but the Lakers side of it, you're absolutely right. And that's why that like they deserve to be publicly shamed at every turn from anyone who wants to go on television. And that's why like Magic went on there for self-serving reasons, but I ultimately look at it as an act of Lakers patriotism to talk about how clueless uh, Rob Palenka is. and And Magic does have a point that he was brought in to be kind of the bigger picture guy, and Rob was supposed to do the day-to-day things. And we have... Zero evidence that Rob Palinka has any idea what he's doing, whether it's mismanaging the Pelicans' negotiations, completely misgaging his um, his leverage with Ty Lu. and like so, I, I I
1: think that the Lakers deserve to be shamed regardless. And well, um, so, the I last... hear your point on that. Just as a quick counter, though, like I'm not sure lack of self awareness is the Lakers' problem, though. Like I think the people who have been Ooh, in it for I, years. I are kind of aware of their shortcomings, right? Like I mean these people have, especially ownership, has lived it day in and day out for six years. That's why they were so over the moon at getting LeBron James because here was a guy who was gonna fix all of these problems that they didn't know how to so, fix otherwise. I guess so. I guess so. But here's the thing that
0: I wonder about is whether when when we talk about Lakers' shortcomings, we're talking about them not doing any of the little things that make organizations successful, like whether it's scouting, whether it's having the right medical staff, whether it's not hiring Jason Kidd as a built-in successor to the coach you just hired. Like there, there are decisions that the Lakers have made that any normal smart organization never would have made. and um, And they just have a lot of blind spots. But I think that when the Lakers think about their shortcomings – that's Genie being like, "That's right, we missed on Paul George, but that's okay. We're gonna sign Kawhi this summer." And and like, it's the lack of titles, the lack of superstars that they think is is holding them back. When in reality, there's a lot of structural issues that just haven't been addressed for the last five or six years. I
1: think it's a case where they're in over their head in the pool, and I think they know mm-hmm. it, and they're not gonna shout out, "I'm drowning, I'm drowning," because that's not good PR. Um, but I do think that they've lost for long enough and it's been such a, uh, a direct and cosmic shift since, uh, Dr. Bus passed away that everybody who's been there for that entire time period, the, the losing culture has set in, right? Um, LeBron mm-hmm. was not able to save it. And so I think that they're sitting there at this point, realizing they don't have the answers right why else do you send 15 people for your interview with monty williams right <laughs> like <laughs> why else do you settle on frank vogel and have that whole thing play out publicly with everybody trying to angle to to shift the blame somewhere else because you know it's a bad decision because you know it's a bad process and because you want to be the last person standing because you believe yourself that you may be uh know better than the other people there i don't think there. if you yeah. pulled all of those people blindly and said hey Is this a functional organization? Do you guys really know what you're doing? Do we have experienced decision makers in the places that need to be there? Are we working as a team? Is this healthy? And everybody could just fill out that survey blindly. Don't you think every single person, including a lot of the names that we've just mentioned, would all agree with Magic and say, this is a mess. (laughs) Like, we have no idea what we're doing. It depends
0: on what we're talking about. If we're talking about like middle managers for the Lakers, absolutely, they would all answer the questionnaire uh, honestly, and it the results would be hilarious. Um, but I do think like the top of the organization, whether it's Genie or whether it's Polinka or whether it's this guy, Tim Harris, that has now been introduced to the world via magic's interview. I think that they may be more out of touch than we even realize well one thing Um, though that comes back
1: to me with like you saw that video of him just sort of like walking in circles with his head down after a loss it went viral I'm, I'm sure you saw it towards the end of the season where he just looked like he was you know in like a very dark and sad place and he was just all by himself walking around in that circle like by the tunnel um yeah. That scene played out 25 times this year, you know? Like, I, I watched him make that, like, <laughs> I after losses. Look, he's a strange I, dude. I know, but I'm saying I, I watched him make that walk of shame, you know, from the court out of yeah. the arena 25 times. I, and I'm not trying to, like, you know, completely bury him. That's a tough life, man. When you're, when you're in these situations where you don't have the answers – of how you can turn things around, you get desperate. You go out and chase Anthony Davis. Uh, You pray that LeBron's gonna be able to turn everything around by himself. You try to convince people that everything was fine before that LeBron got injured, right? You get into your talking points and your spin mode because that's what you should do as like the public face of the organization, try to strike an optimistic bend and everything else. But I think deep down, the people who are involved in the dysfunction realize the dysfunction. I don't think that they're, they're blind here.
0: Okay, so last question. This podcast is already way too long, but I did have a discussion with friend of the podcast, uh, Damon Rangula, who is an awesome Lakers fan. If if you aren't already, you should follow him on Twitter. Um, but we were talking back and forth about kind of the state of the Lakers. I wrote about Jeannie Buss earlier this week, and I followed up with him a couple days later, and... He came back with a galaxy brain take that I actually kind of agree with and said the best thing that could happen to the Lakers this season, um, this offseason, that is, would be to not sign any of these superstars and watch the Clippers hit it big with Kawhi and another superstar and come back to next year with a, a real super team so that the Lakers would be shamed into... Actually, making some of the real changes that they've needed to make over the last like 10 years and that have just been kind of ignored over the years. Yeah.
1: What I, do you think? I, I love that idea. But again, I think if someone's going to come in and say, look, we don't need to do that, like, here's a quick fix, aren't they going to opt for that quick fix because they want to believe, right? Like, is there ever going to be like, yeah. haven't they hit rock bottom here so many times that what you're describing should have already happened multiple times? Um, yeah. I think they're in this cycle I mean, where like, Somebody gets two years to try to make it work. It doesn't work. Somebody else promises a better path. Okay, you bring that person in, you let them go for two years, then you fire them, you bring somebody else in. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think something like that could trigger LeBron to kind of question his role in all of this. Like at what point-
0: And wouldn't that then maybe trigger the the, the like crisis that this 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 stupid franchise actually needs? Like they need a full scale overhaul.
1: Yeah. I I guess- we can't know that, but I also think that the easiest way to get what to what you're describing is for on an ownership change, right? For somebody to sell the yeah. team. Like I, I I don't know. Like we've got a long track record here of how they do business for six seasons. It hasn't worked. And my confidence in that moment of clarity where they turn into this team that's just like you know scrappy underdogs drafting all these different guys, you know, building the right way and all of that. Uh, is zero. <laughs> like I'll, b- I'll believe mm-hmm. it when I see it. Because <laughs> D'Angelo Russell is where he is, Julius Randle is where he is, you know, and all the other moves along the way. And I think that it's not all their fault because they get held to the standard of the Showtime Lakers, the Shaq Kobe Lakers, yeah. the 2010 Lakers. Right. They they feel that pressure to always be viewed as a top three organization or even the number one organization in the NBA. And that pressure influences their decision-making and so many, I mean, it makes them go for short-term solutions over long-term solutions time and time and time again. That's true.
0: And they're also measured against those teams in an era where a lot of the competitive advantages that they used to enjoy no longer exist. And in fact, the Lakers have less money than a lot of teams around the NBA. I mean, they, they have a great TV deal, but like the Bus family is we've we've been over how much richer um steve Ballmer is than the bus family so it it makes it difficult um but yeah ultimately all i really care about is Stephen a and magic johnson starting a podcast uh ben this has been fun you i guess i don't know when our next podcast is going to be maybe toronto uh, maybe we'll be in toronto next week but um either way thank you and um we'll see where we are uh with our when, when it's time to preview the finals that sounds, that sounds a
1: good look if you're going to be shouting out Damon's twitter go ahead and give my instagram a shout out ben.goliver on instagram check me out <laughs> um openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com uh, also we're on apple Podcasts. you can search for our page uh by typing in open floor that's two words find that page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars. It's just that easy. We really appreciate you helping us spread the word. We're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor. Andrew, until next week, I'll talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy.